Hi, I'm Chow Tu, and welcome to the first Slate Plus episode for Slow Burn Season 7, which is covering the lead-up to Roe v. Wade. In these member-exclusive episodes, we'll hear from the Slow Burn team about the making of the show, and then we'll hear some interviews that will expand upon the themes and stories covered in the series. In this episode, we're going to hear more about the TV show The Defenders and the depiction of abortion in culture in the 1960s. But we'll start off today talking about the premise of the Silburn season and this first episode. So I have here with me host Susan Matthews and producer Samira Tazari. Hey there, you two. Thank you for being here. Hi, Chow. Thanks for having us. Hi. It's a pleasure. Great. Okay, so Slate announced this new season of Slowburn in early May, right after the news of the Supreme Court leak over the future of Roe v. Wade. But of course, you didn't just like start making the season in reaction to that news. So Susan, can you talk about how the premise of this season first came about and basically why you wanted to cover this topic? No, Chow, we made this series in a month. <laughs> just kidding. I actually had thought about a series on Roe v. Wade ever since like the first couple seasons of Slow Burn. I felt like the premise of the show is really to look at something that everybody kind of thinks that they know, but they don't really understand. And I was a journalist who covered jurisprudence and women's issues. And I could basically tell you that Roe v. Wade was decided on privacy and Mm -hmm. um, it happened in the 1970s. And like that was about it. So I had been thinking about it for a while. And then what happened basically is that I would say that the real idea for the series came during the week that I was actually watching the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings for Mm. the Supreme Court. And what I would say about that is that while I was watching that and while I was thinking about what had happened with the balance of power at the Supreme Court, I really felt a few different things. And one of them was that I have been covering and helping cover the Supreme Court for several years now, and I think that in many ways we've done a really good job of kind of explaining what has changed. And in other ways, it really felt like there was almost no way to convey the significance of what I thought specifically that appointment and the switch of Ruth Bader Ginsburg for Amy Coney Barrett would mean for America and for what was going to happen to the laws. Um, So that was really when I started thinking about it. And the other part of it that I really was thinking about at that time is just that also as a journalist, particularly of women's issues, I have so many times about abortion, about Me Too, about all these different things, just watched women basically have to like bleed onto the page and tell their most personal, significant, tragic stories in an attempt to say like, this is why this is important. This is why this right is important. And I just had this very overwhelming feeling during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings that, like, I didn't want to go into a spring in which we were going to be expecting a decision from the Supreme Court that might overrule Dobbs. I didn't want to spend that time just trying to edit those essays and make that kind of argument. I wanted to do something different, and I wanted to really understand how we got here and really understand the history better. So that was where the idea of the series came from. We are definitely, I mean, there are definitely some pretty sad stories. So there's not an absence of bleeding on the page happening right, <laughs> in right. this show. But I think that it's a little bit different because it's not just like every single woman in the world. It's like the people who were, I think, pretty consequential to this story. Right. And you were also anticipating that the Dobbs decision would be coming out. Yeah. So Amy Coney Barrett joined the court in October, I think technically, of 2020. That year, it felt like it was kind of too late for there to be a definitive case that would be the one that could overrule Roe. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, over that summer, 
we saw the Dobbs case be docketed and we knew that it was going to be argued in December. So there was a pretty good indication that Dobbs was kind of going to be the case. And really the way that I felt about it, too, this might be a little technically jurisprudency, but when the arguments for the case happened in December, I listened to them mm-hmm. and it really sounded like they really wanted to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah. But one of the things that we've always talked about is that like the justices are kind of too politically savvy to ever write the words Roe v. Wade is overturned. Like it just seemed like they're going to, you know, change the limit. They're going to move it from 24 weeks that it is now to 15 weeks. And they're going to say, you still have the right. It's just, you know, that's the change. And then Justice Alito's opinion leaked. And Mm -hmm. in that opinion, he basically says, yeah, Roe was decided incorrectly. It's always been wrong. And the righteous thing to do is to overturn it. And so it definitely was a moment this May, like we had already been kind of bracing for this. And then it just kind of became the explicit text rather than the subtext. Right, right. And do you think that leak affected anything with the making of the show so far? What do you think, Samira? (laughs) No, uh, I I don't really. It made it feel different. Yeah, I think I remember the moment where we were just like, does this change anything for us? Like, how should we, like, process this and think about this for the show? And I think it was very clear that we were coming into it with a very, you know, clear vision. And this wasn't going to change it, but it did definitely bring relevancy into the conversation. And we had conversations as a team about it that made it, you know, that much more important. Yeah, it was an emotional day (laughs) that day, I would say. Uh, Yeah, so let's hear a little bit more about this vision. So like the subtitle of the Slowburn season, of course, is Roe v. Wade, but you're not going to be talking like explicitly about that case. Can you run us through what you're going to be covering this season, Samira? Yes. So this season, we're going to talk about events that happened prior to Roe v. Wade. Okay. And so we're really digging into things that led up to the eventual decision. Uh, and each episode, I think, sort of gives a context and seeds of how the eventual decision would be made. First episode, you've heard the episode. Shirley Wheeler is a fascinating, fascinating person. In episode two, we'll be talking about the Wilkies and the beginnings of the pro-life movement. Episode three covers Women vs. Connecticut. And episode four, we'll be covering Blackman, whose thought process is very interesting. And he's such an interesting thinker and mind. And he sort of approaches it with many different uh, things that he's trying to balance and taking into account all the things that we're really digging into in the series. Mm -hmm. So it, it feels very holistic in that way. And Blackman is a Supreme Court justice. Yes. So Justice Blackman, he is basically the person who is associated most with the Roe v. Wade decision and really pushed it forward. Got it. Can I say, I want to add one thing about what we're not talking about, which has been something that I've been thinking about a little bit. We are not telling the full story of Jane Roe Mm -hmm. in this series. And I thought about that a lot. And I think that... The story of Jane Roe is is incredibly interesting and textured and layered. She is the plaintiff in the suit Roe v. Wade. She's anonymous at first. She later kind of switches sides and, you know, joins the pro-life movement. And then at the end of her life, she says that she only did that because they paid her money. It's a, it's a yeah. very complicated story that intersects with poverty and a lot of different things. My feeling was that 
her story has both been told and her story really unfurls after the decision in Roe v. Wade. Like, Roe doesn't really affect her life that much. She was pregnant at the time when they brought the case, but she doesn't get an abortion in time. She has that child. She gives that child up for adoption. And I think that when the story is told, they focus a lot on her changes of heart, her lawyers, who are both women. But I really wanted, particularly because the way that the Supreme Court is now deciding what to do about Roe, I really wanted the focus of the episode on Roe to be the Supreme Court itself. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I thought going into this series is that the conversation on abortion to me feels really trapped and like stale and like there's one side and then there's the other side. And I think that in some ways we're really attracted to Norma McCorvey's story because she goes back and forth. But I think that the bar that I had this whole time for the stories that we wanted to tell is that I wanted to find things that I would tell my friends at a bar that were like interesting enough that weren't just interesting because they were important. Like, there was something about each story that, like, says something bigger about not just abortion, but, like, what people do and why. So I just feel like when something gets slotted into both being a partisan issue and being, like, something where it feels like we're just having a conversation about rights, I think it, like, kind of sucks all the oxygen out of the room. There isn't a lot of room for nuance. There isn't a lot of room for, like, how actual people have to interact with this. And so when we were looking, particularly in the time before Roe, where the political landscape is totally different, the partisanship isn't there, it's definitely an intense issue, it's controversial, there's a lot of feelings around it, but the landscape is so different, I think that there was a lot more room to kind of let all of these stories breathe. Yeah. And Norma McCorvey is Roe. Yes. Jane Roe was a pseudonym. Mary Doe was the other case. It was also a pseudonym. So like many of the cases that were going up were totally anonymous. Got it. We'll get into that more when we talk about women versus Connecticut. (laughs) Episode three. And like to that point of you're talking about not just wanting to talk about stories because they're important to talk about, but there's something interesting that's happening. I think we made this concerted effort or we we really tried to lean into the personal stories. Like we're not just covering cases. We're talking about the people around the situations that were happening at the time and creating context and showing the momentum of what was taking place in these years before Roe. So I think that was an important approach to make this interesting, captivating. And, you know, we're not trying to take on all of the complexities yeah. around this topic. We're really, really leaning the into these just jargon about few all this. years. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so we just heard the first episode. This is about Shirley Wheeler. I'm curious about how you came across her, Susan, and why you decided to make her the subject of the first episode. I was actually trying to remember how I first came across Shirley Wheeler's story. <laughs> I honestly think that I came across a reference to it on a Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. And it was very early on in like the very first pitch for the series. And it was very much that she was described as the first woman to be convicted of manslaughter. I saw the detail that she was told to get married or go home. And then I saw that she made the choice to go home. Yeah. And that she had this association with the women's movement at that point. And I think her choice to pick going home was the thing that made me kind of fall in love with her very early on. And then we started working on the series. We were like, wow, nobody knows about Shirley Wheeler. We had like several months where we were kind of like, how do we find this? And we really had to go to like 
the real people who were really involved, a newspaper reporter who was in Miami at the time. Samira found her ex-boyfriend from the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, We really tracked down the prosecutor from the time. Like those primary sources really shaped the story for us. And I think that she is super interesting. She was like a flash in the pan in 1971 in in the national news, and then she receded. So she's somebody who I feel like we're we're surfacing. Right. Yeah. So in the episode, we hear from Robert Wheeler, who is Shuri's partner. And Samira, I want to hear more about like what was like talking to him about this, like talking to these people about Shirley. So Robert Wheeler is a sweet human being. (laughs) I will first say that to even find him was very surprising for us. Yeah. We, you know, thought it would be great to be able to talk to him if he was still around, Mm -hmm. if we were able to single him out out of the number of Robert Wheelers they yeah, were in Florida. Yeah. And so, and, you know, the, I think going back to the sources, to the newspapers at the time, a lot of them had sort of specific details about him. So it just made us even more eager to talk to him, mm. just knowing how much he was a part of the story as well. Right. We were able to get in touch with him, get him on the phone. And this is something that he, a part of his life he hasn't probably talked about in a while, and really let in a lot of this past into his life again yeah. for the purposes of the story and because the way we described it felt very important to him. And so I think in those first conversations with him, it was very much a communication of that, like what we were trying to do and any clarification he had on Shirley's story. Mm-hmm. It was a sort of process to spend a lot of time with him, ask him a lot of questions. And he was willing to do that with us because he felt that whatever he could dig up in his memory about Shirley is important and it mattered. Mm -hmm. And he also provided the photo that is the podcast tile, right? Yes, yes. So, you know, he's an artist. He's a photographer. Uh, So he took a lot of pictures of Shirley back in the day. And that one felt very striking to us. We had like a interview with him and he was showing us a number of pictures while we were interviewing him Mm -hmm. and uh, he had some stories to go along with certain photos and this one we really glommed onto as a team and we're like this is something special yeah my favorite thing about robert wheeler is that he calls shirley Cheryl. (laughs) sweet uh and so nancy stearns is another important source in this episode susan i want to hear more about getting in touch with her was that difficult was that easy Nancy Stearns was very easy to get in touch with, actually. But the thing that was funny to me is that I found her and I emailed her and then I got on the phone with her and I said to her that the reason I wanted to talk to her was because we were looking into this story about Shirley Wheeler and she had represented Shirley at one point. So I figured she would remember details of the case. And she does. But when I explained the project to her the first time, the first thing that she said was, you think that you're talking to me about the Shirley Wheeler story. You should actually be talking to me about everything else that I did on abortion (laughs) litigation before Roe v. Wade. And she actually was one of the very first people to like, I had heard about Women versus Connecticut, which is kind of what they called themselves. The actual case is Abilene versus Merkel. But she had worked on this other case, Abramowitz versus, I don't remember, the state attorney general of New York. She like really piloted this form of litigation 
segregation that many states, particularly in the Northeast, did in the early 1970s. And like one of the things that I think is really interesting about Roe is that it was never guaranteed that the ruling that would be the ruling on abortion would come from Roe v. Wade. Like Roe v. Wade goes up to the court paired with another case, Stowe v. Bolton. There's all this other litigation happening in other states. And Nancy Stearns was really, really involved (laughs) in this other form of litigation. And so Nancy actually comes back in episode three. Okay. That's great. Looking forward to it. So the first thing that you actually talk about in this episode is something that inspired Nancy Stearns to become a constitutional lawyer. And that's a show called The Defenders. So Samira, this like caught your attention like immediately and you started looking into it. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So Nancy Stearns mentioned in her interview with us this show called The Defenders. Yeah. And she described it glowingly. And we were like, oh, let's definitely make sure to, you know, include this and and talk about the show. I think I was drawn first to uh, this idea of like, let me try to find a clip from the show. Just the way she was describing it, she felt it was a direct connection to how she approached law. And it just made me think like, is there some content they have about abortion? Did they ever (laughs) do an episode about abortion? (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, I mean, apparently they did. That's a big yes. Mm -hmm. They did an episode and it was controversial. It was called The Benefactor in 1962. I believe. And it was something that followed the story of a doctor who performed abortions and was being charged. And he knew that he would get in trouble, but Mm. he wanted to just make a statement. And his lawyers, the main father-son duo of the show, understood that. And so they used the testimony of women uh, and sharing their stories uh, sort of as a platform in a way to test the law. So really leaned into the ethos of the show. But as you might expect, it was very controversial at the time and lots of advertisers pulled their dollars from the show. And this sort of whole event even inspired um, a Mad Men episode right. uh, of the same name, The Benefactor. Right. So actually, for the rest of this episode, we're going to hear more about this controversial abortion episode of The Defenders in an interview that Susan did with TV historian Stephen Bowie. So he wrote this really great deep dive about this episode and talked to some people involved in the show for his classic TV history blog, which we've linked to in the show notes. Um, So we're going to hear Susan and Stephen discuss what TV coverage of abortion was like back in the 1960s and what made this Defenders episode really stand out in its time. So let's listen to that interview now. So to start off, Stephen, can you just tell me a little bit about like how you first got into The Defenders and what you like about it as a show? Right. Well, so I was always interested in that period of television history. It's stuff I grew up watching in syndication when I was a kid and then when I went to film school and moved to Los Angeles, I had access to shows that were rarer and there were video stores that had bootlegs and I met collectors. And so I started exploring some of the shows that were not as widely known or as widely syndicated or as accessible. And the, the top of that list was always the Defenders. It was always acknowledged as, I think, among you know TV nerds and fans of that era as the kind of Rolls Royce of television drama from the Kennedy era, you know, it was the most topical and the most controversial and the most literate and political and plugged into its times. And it was, um, it ran for a fairly long time. It was one of the few shows that was really um, like confrontational drama that was a success and it lasted for four seasons. And it was sort of for 
variety of reasons that aren't clear. It didn't have much of an afterlife, wasn't syndicated widely, and it still is not entirely available on home video. And so it was just this kind of sought after object that people remembered as being a high point of quality television. It got off to kind of a slow start creatively, but once it kind of found itself, arguably with the episode that dealt with abortion, it just started doing these really uncompromising dramatizations of political dialogues, of, of issues-oriented drama. And it, it tackled a lot of social issues that um, no one else would, would touch. And it got into explicit advocacy, you know, liberal and leftist points of view. And that was all very rare in television at that time. We're going to talk more about the Benefactor episode in just a second. But I wanted to ask specifically, like, what was the reputation of the show before that episode? You talked a little bit about the slow start. Like, was that episode the turning point? Or, like, what were the glimmers of what it was going to become early on? Well, the Defenders had a lot of prestige out of the gate because it came from two people who were real heavy hitters in the television industry. I mean, the executive producer was a guy named uh, Herbert Brodkin. I mean, he was an independent but he had produced some segments of Playhouse 90, which was kind of the premier, the high watermark of television dramatic anthology in the 50s. And in that setting, he pursued the same kind of controversy and the same kind of issues-oriented storytelling that, that you got later in the, the Defenders. He produced the famous segment of Playhouse 90, Judgment at Nuremberg, which was about the mass executions and the concentration camps in, in Nazi Germany. And the sponsor of that show was the gas company, and they sort of said at the 11th hour, wait a second, we don't really want you talking yeah. about um, genocide by gas. And there was this showdown with the network where they said, well, if you don't take out all those references to the gas chambers, we're going to mute the audio on air. And Bradkin said, you know what, do it. And they did. So, you know, he was the person who sold the Defenders to the network, and it was sold on the strength of Reginald Rose, the creator and the primary writer. And Rose was the guy who wrote 12 Angry Men. So he was one of the acknowledged as one of the top television writers of the 50s and had gone on to a, you know, a screenwriting career and was really one of the big names that you could get behind the camera to do a TV series at that time. The obvious person to compare him to now, I think, would be David Simon in terms of having consistently pursued a, a kind of institutional critique of, of a variety of social issues and concerns and wrongs that, that he felt should be righted. Mm -hmm. And can you tell me, before we get into the like meta story of what happened with this episode of The Defenders, can you tell me just the plot of the Benefactors episode? Yeah, I mean, it, it's about a really sort of kindly, avuncular white male doctor in Manhattan uh, who has been quietly performing illegal abortions for a decade. And he is, he is arrested by the police and the protagonists of the defenders are father, a father and son a law firm. They take on his case as public defenders and the doctor expresses indifference to the outcome of whether he's convicted or not, but he wants to put the law on trial. He wants to have a forum in the courtroom to advocate for at least some degree of legalization of abortion. And, you know, the lawyers sort of reluctantly go along with that. And the bulk of the show is this kind of back and forth between the defense and the prosecution and as to the morality of abortion, whether it should be legalized or uh, whether the law, the current laws at the time were fair and what the consequences were for women who sought abortions or did have abortions. And there are some secondary characters in the show who exemplify that. You know, there were three women who consulted this doctor and had varying outcomes regarding their pregnancies, and, and they offer testimony. And so it ends up becoming this kind of array of points of view on uh, abortion. Mm -hmm. And 
now get into kind of the slightly more meta version of what happened when the Defenders wanted to air this episode. Well, it was obviously controversial. I mean, it was 1962, right? Yeah, it was filmed in 1961. It was sat on the shelf for a while during the back and forth over whether it would air. And it was broadcast in, in April of 1962. That was remarkable to me as someone who's just spent so much time researching abortion because 1962 is like so early on in people talking publicly right. about this. It's the only example that I can think of prior to Roe versus Wade of really explicit advocacy for some degree of legalization of abortion, where it's really, it's, it's quite critical of the idea that abortion is unilaterally immoral it pretty much spells out the idea that that a fetus is not a person. You know, it, it's not, it doesn't 100% say that, but it, it kind of introduces that idea and criticizes it. So it was way ahead of its time. I mean, one piece of context that I think is important is that it's not that nobody ever talked about abortion on television in the 50s and 60s, or even that there was always this reaffirmation that, that abortion was evil and bad. But the trope that you get when you see abortion come up in television prior to Roe versus Wade, I think, is this focus on the abortionists and this depiction of them as in kind of horror movie tropes. You know, mm -hmm. there's an emphasis on them as being like defrocked doctors and, you know, they're drunks or sadists or they're dangerous. Usually they're seen as predators and, and women who seek abortions are seen as victims who are in danger. And, you know, most often this is playing out in crime dramas or medical dramas. So you have these cops who are trying to put bad abortionists out of business and save the lives of women, you know, who might be killed by them. So, that, I mean, you can argue that as an ambivalent take on abortion because it's at least sympathetic to women who have unwanted pregnancies within certain constraints, but it never really contemplates the idea that they should be able to have abortions right. safely and legally. Just addressing that question is, was the, the real hot potato that no one wanted to go near. You know, it was something that shows as mainstream as Ironside would do a story about, you know, a woman who dies from an illegal abortion and, and some of the context around that. It just wouldn't be progressive in any kind of political sense. So this progressive take on it, tell me about what happened with the advertisers, with when they decided to run it. So they did manage to film it before it became controversial, which is fortunate. It wasn't rejected or really rehashed at the script stage. But they did show it to the series regular sponsors. There were, there were three of them, and they all said, we're not going to have anything to do with this. So it kind of kicked around for a while, and they found the Spidel Watch Corporation, which was not a major network advertiser, who bought out the whole show. And, and so they had sponsorship and they could put it on that way. But then they showed it to the network affiliates, all the local stations that carried CBS. And there were some objections from them and a number of markets refused to air the show. And then other markets put it on late, uh, you know, after the evening news or whatever. And it even had problems in, in Canada and in the UK. It got on the air and they didn't gut it. They didn't reshoot it or anything. And somewhat surprisingly, given the stereotypes, the, the network was supportive of it. I mean, Frank Stanton, one of the heads of CBS, testified in Congress in favor of it, and they were pretty affirmative about it in the press. And, you know, they actually had some backbone, and they put it on pretty much the way that, that Reginald Rose and, and Brodkin wanted it seen. And, you know, the response was pretty positive. They took audience surveys. And the audience was pretty positive about it, and the mail they, that CBS got was pretty positive about it. So it was kind of a success story of tackling something challenging on TV and giving it 
you know, a respectable treatment that didn't cave in terms of the point of view that it wanted to express and in having, you know, an audience reaction that was pretty positive and that didn't harm the show. And and arguably it was good for the, for the Defenders because it lasted for four years and it, it was a modest hit and the ratings were strongest in the first two seasons. Mm-hmm. It's quite possible that the abortion show attracted viewers to it. So I wanted to ask you because I watch the episode, obviously, mm-hmm. myself recently. And I understand very much how it would have been just totally revolutionary at the time. I was curious what you think about the episode itself, like how you would describe the experience of, of watching it now. I can I can say a little bit about what I what I felt watching it. But go ahead. No, I'm curious. You know, it, it is a show that's 60 years old. I mean, I watched it again to prepare for this, too, and it's undeniably stilted in certain ways, some of which aren't even related to the topic. I mean, you know, one of the reasons Brodkin was able to get this kind of stuff on the air was that he didn't spend any money on it. He was notoriously cheap. So it's a little flat, you know, dramatically. It's a little stilted. It's very talky. I mean, that was the kind of show that he liked putting on, and they had the right material for it. In terms of how it treats the topic, you know, I think there are things that are really ahead of their time, and there are things that you would kind of cringe at I mean, I think the biggest weakness of it is that it's quite paternalistic. It doesn't seem to have any problem with the idea of a lot of middle-aged men making decisions about whether women should have abortions or not, even if the positions that they take are fairly progressive. So it's a bit cringeworthy. And in that regard now, I mean, it doesn't have that perspective. And I think that's a criticism that you can make broadly of a lot of the liberal and leftist television of that that show. I mean, the Defenders ran for four years that had exactly one woman writer and one woman Mm-hmm. pre-editor and as far as I can remember no people of color in those roles so that's an inherent limitation of it that I don't have any inclination to apologize for the thing that's striking in that I think within the storyline is that they both sides it in a variety of ways actually but I think the way they kind of shore up the push for abortion legalization is that they they really emphasize the fact that this doctor who is pro-abortion that he nevertheless turns away about more than 90% of the women who come to come for abortions on criteria like, well, they're married, you know, they can raise a kid or they're promiscuous or they're emotionally strong enough to handle an unwanted pregnancy. You know, now you think, well, so what? (laughs) Or none of your business. But that's presented as a positive, you know, that this doctor is quite discriminating in the number of abortions that he's willing to hand out. And the fact that he is um, screening the women for the reasons that they would like to terminate their pregnancies. Yeah. As somebody who has been thinking about this so much, when I watched it, that was my exact reaction. Like there's a model, I think is her career, who comes to testify and it's like a dramatic turn in the in the story. Like it's it's deployed very effectively for courtroom drama. But like the upshot of her story is that he basically said, like, no, you should have this baby. And, you know, five years later, she's grateful to him for saying that. So it just struck me as so of this period in the early 1960s which is actually very aligned with what was happening with the history of abortion at the time, where it's like, if we put the decision in the hands of the doctor, then it'll be safe, which is actually like very much part of what ends up going into, you know, the decision in Roe v. Wade, even even after women really get involved in the fight for themselves. First of all, in the 60s, the argument to liberalize the laws is so championed by doctors first in this period. And so it just felt so representative of the idea that like, well, the doctor can make the decision with the woman rather than fronting it as a woman's rights issue. 
I mean, I think it's best understood as a what a pre-feminist pro-choice rhetoric would look like, you know, mm-hmm. like what the best liberal or leftist case for legalizing abortion is before you have this kind of consciousness raising about, you know, gender equality that comes a little bit later, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Um, I mean, I think there are things about it that are really strong and it still seems strong by today's standards. I mean, the, the character mm-hmm. that Colin Wilcox plays was was raped and that was the reason that she didn't want to have the child. She's quite unapologetic about having chosen to terminate the pregnancy. I mean, they have other characters who express some regret about it, you know, like the, the model that you mentioned. And that, of course, today feels like anti-choice rhetoric. But this woman who was raped, she's very explicit about the fact that Yes, she's glad she had an abortion. Yes, she's grateful to the doctor. No, she doesn't have any regrets. And they also show her in a scene with her mother. And her mother comes in. And her mother is not the intolerant parent. Her mother is also grateful Mm -hmm. that this woman had the choice of terminating the pregnancy and getting past her trauma in that way. And it's easy to to portray a young woman who's seeking an abortion as, you know, naive or, or irresponsible or unformed or whatever. And I think there are parts of it that hold up today as being quite forceful in rejecting some of the common arguments then and now against legalized abortion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, to me, I felt like, oh, this is a very sexist representation of the pro-choice argument, but oh, but I oh, found it, it to be to be quite funny. And, and at the end, when all the lawyers are sitting around together and they're just they're leering at the woman, they're like, oh, that model is really hot. I couldn't take my eyes off of <laughs> totally. her. And I'm sure they were not self-aware of that at all. And yet, it does feel like an actual thing that would have happened even among people who were mm-hmm. relatively open to the idea of, you know, legalizing abortion and relatively sympathetic to women who sought to terminate their pregnancies. They would then turn around and talk about how hot they were. Well, you know. speaking of that, can you tell me about the Mad Men connection to this specific episode of The Defenders? Because that feels right up this same alley a little bit. Yeah, I would love to know how Mad Men got onto that. Because, you know, unlike 12 Angry Men or The Twilight Zone, which they also love to reference on Mad Men, this is just so vanishingly obscure. The first season of The Defenders, which includes this episode, is on DVD now, but it was not at the time that Mad Men did this show. So I'm sure for the vast number of people who watch Mad Men had never heard of this or seen it and maybe didn't even realize that it was a real show and not just something they made up for the convenience of the plot. But Matthew Wiener was known for just exhaustively researching this period. And somehow the research that he had done for that show must have come across this little controversy and sparked something in him because they do embed it through a second season episode as a kind of sea story related to the agency's attempt to expand into television, they quite cleverly embed this back and forth controversy over who would sponsor the show. They make the ad agency that's central to Mad Men a part of that real life situation. So, you know, the Mad Men piece is not particularly about abortion. I don't think it's more about the executive suites behind the scenes kind of thing about scrambling to find the advertisers who will pay to advertise on the on the show when the other advertisers pull out. And I think I didn't actually go back and watch the Mad Men episode. I've seen Mad Men multiple times, but like it is such a like Don Draper sell of like, well, you can get this at such a discount. Of course, you should advertise on the on the controversial episode kind of a take. Yeah. You know, they're both very literate and, you know, I think wonderful and intelligent shows, but they're just super masculine. Mm-hmm. You know, Mad Men is a, a critique of the old boys club that sort of ran everything and, and was just sort of oppressive. Anybody who wasn't a middle-aged, you know, white guy, upper-class white guy. And The Defenders is a product of that. It looks like it on screen, and it was very much made by guys who were a lot like those Mad Men characters. So it's a good pairing, you know, aesthetically. 
Why do you think that the Defenders fell into obscurity kind of in the way that it did, given its success and popularity at the time? I don't know. I, I've even heard conspiracy theories about this. <laughs> I, I do not think it was suppressed because of its political content. I think that there are some wonky financial aspects of it. But, you know, the overarching thing is that uh, historically black and white shows obviously haven't done as well in syndication. And hour-long dramas generally have underperformed in, in syndication. So it's just kind of a non-commercial property. This might be a tough question to answer off the top of your head, but I'm going to try it anyway. Given this representation of how TV is taking on abortion, like, do you think that TV generally has gotten better at its abortion representations? Has it improved since Roe, do you think? That is a tough question. I will say that I think explicit, unqualified advocacy for abortion is still a tough sell. I still think there's a tendency to cop out in some of the same ways. There's this narrative that television has moved in a straight line in terms of how permissive it's been Mm -hmm. and how sophisticated it's gotten and how good it is or how aesthetically inventive it is. But I've always argued that it's more cyclical, you know, two steps forward and one step back. And Mm -hmm. you have these periods like when the Defenders was on that where they really are willing to go a little further in terms of being political or being confrontational. And they alternate with periods that are much more escapist and unwilling to go there. And I kind of think we're in one of those periods now. I mean, what scripted television shows can you think of in recent years that have really done this kind of work, have really taken controversial issues like abortion and taken strong, you know, opinions on them? I can't think of many. Can you? Yeah, I had done a little bit of research on on this specific question. And my sense is that the best answer to this question is the abortion that Olivia Pope gets in Scandal, which is making a statement essentially by not making a statement. Like she just kind of experiences it and she doesn't regret it. And it's not a complicated thing. Like it's just a clear decision that she's going to make. And they show her making it and they show her getting it. And then like they move on. So the thing that's surprising about that is that they don't make it a big deal. Like, obviously, the decision around whether to get an abortion or not, and like, showing the drama of that is very attractive for TV, I think. And I think that just doesn't mimic what a lot of people actually experience, where it isn't actually that hard of a question for a lot of people. Right. Just the absence of other examples is provocative. I know. <laughs> yeah, no. And it's kind of like, the most realistic example that we're getting is from Scandal, which is inherently a ridiculous right. television show. I just think, you know, television in the 50s and television now, I mean, the default is just not wanting to deal with it. You know, it's just not wanting to piss people off. A lot of the shows that kind of push the limits dramatically and aesthetically are not that explicitly political or they're not political at all. And I miss that. There are very few, even of the most critically claimed shows now that have that interest. I always point to the Defenders and I say, you know, in the early 60s, they were advocating for things that would be hard to advocate for now. I mean, there's an episode that I'm just marvel at. It's about recreational use of LSD and it's extremely pro. It's just total advocacy for recreational drug use and for like drugs as a way of expanding your consciousness. And whatever the arguments are for, you know, drug legalization now, they really aren't in that area. You know, mm-hmm. there's criticism of religion and advocacy for atheism that I just don't think anybody would want to get into that now. Like, I just think that really explaining like 
the illegal element of abortion before Roe, like people who have lived through it, who are a lot of the people that I've been interviewing, have such a clear memory of like, this is what it was like. And so I think finding this this representation in the Defenders was was really helpful. Well, when the Mad Men thing happened and I, and I wrote that piece and I, I looked into this, I called up Colin Wilcox, who played one of the, the women who had an abortion in that show. And she just gave me this incredible gift of this personal story behind the making of it, which is that, you know, I asked her about playing that character who had the abortion. And she said, well, you know, that wasn't difficult for me to play at all because the same thing happened to me. And then she told me about how as a, as, as a young woman, she had had pregnancy that she wanted to terminate, you know, illegally, obviously, because this was the 50s. And, mm-hmm. and she and her mother flew to Peoria, Illinois, and the doctor showed up with a hat with fish hooks in it. And it was this terrifying experience and she had complications from it and she almost died. And she told me the story, you know, 40 some years later, and it echoes the the story that the Defenders, you know, she was one of the people whose stories the Defenders was trying to share with people to try to move the needle on this topic. And it really hit home, you know, the relevance of this, you know, because one of the three actresses they cast in the show playing right. women who had sought abortions uh, outside the law. You know, it was her story, too. You know, mm-hmm. it just really hit home the value of something, of, of trying to, to tell those stories on prime time, you know, and, and just come upstream uh, against public opinion uh, or corporate opinion, you might say, at that time. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for being a Slate Plus member. Please tell all your friends about this slow burn season, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>